Welcome to Community Christian Church. My name is Ed and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're so glad you joined us online or at Ashley Park today. If you're brand new, um, then you're right in the middle of this series with us where we've been following Jesus from the moment he steps on the pages of history as an adult until the time he's crucified, resurrected as the Savior of the world, and then launches the movement that we're a part of called the church. And in this series, we've been saying the whole time that Jesus came to do something completely new. He came to do something different than they had expected. And what we mean by that is he wasn't trying to launch religion 2.0 or a, a whole different way to see Judaism. He was coming to establish a whole new relationship between God and human beings, what he would refer to as the new covenant with human beings. And what was so interesting is it became clear to everybody who was listening to him, or I shouldn't say to everyone, but to people who listened closely, that he came to, to change everything. And in fact, the, the people that eventually put Jesus to death, I think they got what maybe many people don't get, uh, that they were listening to Jesus, that Jesus came to blow up everything about their system. In fact, one point he says to them, the reason you're having such a hard time with me is that you keep trying to put new wine, which he was talking about his way, into old wineskins. Now, that analogy doesn't mean a whole lot to us because we aren't into vineyards and wine and wineskins. But what he's saying is an old wineskin made out of leather that gets stretched out as the wine ferments and expands. When you take that and you fill it up with brand new wine that needs to expand again, it's just going to break the old wineskin. What he's saying to them is, hey, I'm a whole new thing. I'm totally different than what you want. One time he, he made clear to them, hey, I've come to do away with your temple, which to them was like their whole way of seeing things. As we were taught a few weeks ago by Jason that he was doing away with sacred places and saying to people, hey, God no longer resides in a sacred place. God, the Holy Spirit's going to reside in people, and there are no more sacred places. They're just people, and the sacred things around you are the person behind you and the person in front of you and the person next to you at work and the person you're raising and the person you're married to, that sacred are the people that are around you, that God is for them. And then as Nathan expanded on that last week, that there's no us and, and them. There are no those people. They're just people. And God is for all of them. Because there was nothing going on that was exactly the way they expected it to be, that, that the person seated next to you and the person around you that you might see as good or bad, it's not the way that God sees them. God is for every human being. They're just people. And Jesus was disrupting the status quo and anytime you're there to disrupt the status quo well it makes some people incredibly nervous and he was certainly making the religious leaders of his day the the good people the leaders of that day nervous but some who listened closely were also incredibly intrigued in fact many who thought jesus would be the messiah to take the romans and kick them out of their country and reestablish their power they were confronted with a whole new thing in jesus that they could see he had extraordinary authority, but he never took charge. That even though he had the crowd of people, he never wanted the crown that they wanted to give him. That even though Jesus had all kinds of status and ability and ability to do incredible things, he never used any of that for his own benefit. He, he used it for others. And people who were really listening, people who watched closely, they were incredibly challenged by what he said, and some were incredibly intrigued. In fact, I want to show you a conversation today between Jesus and one of these religious leaders who had to be disturbed by what he heard Jesus said, but we can tell by the conversation he's also intrigued by Jesus and 
and what he comes to bring. And in this conversation, the truths that we're going to see in this conversation, they're right at the heart of what Jesus comes to say to human beings. And it's the truth that we're going to look at today that has such a tremendous impact on my life and in the life of this church. And in part, what we learn in this conversation is what makes Community Christian the place that it is. It's, it's what makes it the place that many of you love. That's a church for everybody. And it's the thing that many people don't understand who are on the outside of Community Christian that why we're a church for everybody. Now, many of you wouldn't know this, but the thing that attracts you that we say everybody's welcome because nobody's perfect and everybody can come, that thing that has been so attractive to so many of you, it's the thing that also for many people in Christianity has made them so critical of what we've been doing at Community Christian. In fact, uh, through the years, it's been this one thing that everybody can come and nobody's perfect and you don't have to be perfect to come, that no perfect people are allowed here, that, has, that we love and accept people even if you don't have it all together up front. It's been what's challenged so many of the Christian people around us. In fact, it used to be that people, when they would want to complain about what we were doing, people from other churches or people, other Christians, they'd have to write us letters or they'd have to send us an email or they'd have to call us on the phone. Now they can just reach out and just post directly on social media about us. And I was having a conversation with one guy not too long ago in social media who had reached out and he just said, you know, you need to stop. You need to just preach Jesus and stop doing all this no perfect people junk. And when I went back to him and said, hey, I believe the Jesus stuff, preaching Jesus is the no perfect people stuff, that that's what Jesus came to say is that you don't have to be perfect to be accepted by God. We went back and forth a little bit, and then eventually he just said, just so you know, you are going to face judgment for this one day, and then he blocked me. So, you know, it's been this truth, the truth that comes out of this conversation that's changed everything. It's been this truth that has worked through people who had problems. I mean, the idea that God uses people who have problems and aren't, people, or aren't perfect, it's always been a challenge for, for some. It's what people saw in Jesus that he moved toward people that were most unlike him that challenged so many of them about what he was trying to say. But when it comes right down to it, the idea that God uses imperfect people, I mean, what other choice does he have? I mean, there aren't any perfect people. And God, from the beginning of time, when he first makes his first covenant with human beings, he comes to a man named Abraham. And three major world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all point to Abraham as the father of the faithful. But when this father of the faithful eventually comes to a place that he has to leave his country and he goes to Egypt in a time of famine, uh, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, sees his wife, Sarah, and, and she's a beautiful woman, and the king of Egypt is attracted to her, and Abraham can tell that he's attracted to his wife. Instead of just saying, hey, man, I appreciate that you, you like my wife. I think she's beautiful too, but she's my wife, like hands off. Instead, Abraham says, oh, she's my sister, and he lets Pharaoh take his wife. Now, I soon will have been married 40 years, and for those of you who are just starting out in this relationship thing, let me just tell you, no matter how good you are at apologizing, that's coming back on you one day. No matter how often you say to your wife, oh, I'm sorry, honey, he was the king, and I felt bad about pimping you out like that, but he was the king. I, I was afraid he was going to kill me. She may say she forgives you, but one day, she's bringing that back up in an argument one day. You just can't walk away from that kind of thing. And it's not just Abraham. 
There's a lady in the family tree of Jesus. Her name is Rahab. And if you don't know a bunch about Rahab, Rahab has this other name that always gets tagged onto her in the Bible. She's not just Rahab. She's Rahab the harlot, or in our words, she'd be the prostitute. And she's used powerfully by God in, in, in his movement with people. And she's not used by God as a former prostitute. She's a prostitute when, G, when, when God uses her. That's the way she's remembered. There's a story in the Old Testament, also a lady who's in the family tree of Jesus. Uh, her name is Ruth. And Ruth is such a great little book in the Bible. It has such great application in so many different kind of ways. But one of the things I love about Ruth is Ruth is that story that a lot of us have with our family tree, you know, that you get on you know, uh, Ancestry.com and start looking back and then there's my dad, then there's his dad, and then there's his dad's dad, and you go back far enough and you begin to see some things and you're like, whoa, I hope nobody ever knows that about our family. Well, Ruth, who's in the family tree of Jesus, she's the great, great, great granddaughter of a guy named Lot, who was Abraham, the father of the faithful's uh, nephew, and the way her whole family tree gets started is Lot gets drunk, has sex with his daughter, and her family tree starts that eventually produces Ruth. The whole family is born out of incest. And she's in the family tree of Jesus. I mean, God has always used people that weren't perfect. It's what, he's what he's always used to accomplish his purpose. Jesus himself, when he chooses the 12 disciples, I mean, they are just this incredible bunch that he decides to choose. They range from being so loud and boisterous he-men that I don't know how he can control to people that are just almost painfully shy and doubtful all the time. I mean, I, I frankly don't know how Jesus kept his cool with Peter. Uh, on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, uh, he knows he's just hours away from going to his death. He says to all of his disciples, look, all of you are going to be betray me tonight. And I think he's just saying to them, hey, don't worry about it. I know it's going to happen. It'll be okay. But he says, all of you are going to fall away. None of you are going to stand up for me. And Peter goes, look, I know the rest of these guys are going to let you down. But even if I have to die, I will die with you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, die? You're not even going to make it to sunrise, dude, and, and not curse at a little girl who asks if you even know me. I mean, how did Jesus tolerate that kind of thing? But that's God's track record. God takes people, just normal people, non-perfect people, and God powerfully uses people who don't have it all together. But the other side of this, of no perfect people and that everybody is welcome, that People also don't get about community Christian that we try to hold on as well as everybody is welcome is that even though God accepts us as we are, God does not accept everything about us. And what I mean by that is God accepts us as we are. But as we turn toward God and we begin to move with God, that the spirit of God begins to change us. Not everything in, in us is acceptable to God and God is at work to change us. But the difference between what most people think about God is you don't have to change to be accepted by God. But once you are accepted, God at that moment begins to work to powerfully change you. And it was that kind of dichotomy between those two that people heard Jesus say that they just couldn't get. And it's what intrigued this one leader in this conversation that we talk about uh, today. Here's this guy 
He comes to Jesus. He's intrigued by what he's, he's heard. And I just want you to listen in on their conversation. It starts in John chapter 3. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. So John's indicating to him, there's this guy, he's a religious leader, he's one of their elite leaders, and he's a Pharisee, which means he's the more conservative of their leaders. Now, the other thing they would know is that Nicodemus is wealthy, and he's educated, and he's the best of the best of all the good people who do most things right that God wants done. He does most of them exactly right. But by watching Jesus, Nicodemus has come to the conclusion, hey, I don't really get everything you're saying, but I know you're from God. And he comes to Jesus at night. I think, one, he's not exactly sure all about Jesus, and he doesn't want to embarrass himself by standing out in front of Jesus. But I also think he wants Jesus to know, I'm not trying to embarrass you. I mean, there'd already been these battles between the Pharisees and Jesus, and they're questioning Jesus publicly to try to embarrass him. And I think Nicodemus wants him to know, hey, I, I don't have any of that. So he starts the conversation this way. After dark one evening, he, Nicodemus, came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. He wants Jesus to know. Hey, I've been watching, and nobody does what you do that God isn't with them. And I I hear what you're having to say, and I, I don't understand it. And so he's just about to ask Jesus this question. He's, he's already told him, look, I'm not asking you a question. I want you to know the question I'm asking you. I'm not trying to trap you. I'm not trying to trick you. I have a genuine question. But before he can ask the question, Jesus does that Jesus thing that he occasionally does, and he answers the dude's question before he asks it. Jesus says, John says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, Nicodemus, I know that your, your questions about this kingdom of God thing, you hear me talking about the kingdom of God and that the kingdom of God is here, and, and you want to know how do people get into the kingdom of God. I know that compared to most people in, in this country, in this world, you get most things right. And if anybody ought to get in, you think it ought to be you. But when I hear you talk, I'm intrigued by this fact that you say other people can get in, that God's welcoming all kinds of people. How do I get in? Here's what I want you to know. No one gets in. Not you, not good people, not bad people. No one gets in without being born again. Now, some of you here born again, and because you've been around church or you heard that phrase before, born again, it's not a good phrase for you. In fact, you hear it and it's almost one of those things that gets thrown off on some group of Christians and you go, oh, they're one of the born agains. And it's not a positive thing for you. And you may not have even known that that, was, that phrase, it comes right out of the mouth of Jesus. And what Jesus is trying to get at is they've been hearing him talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is here and that it's present and that it's available to people. To everyone, repent, believe the good news that the kingdom of God is here. And what they want to know is, how do you get in? And Jesus says, nobody gets in unless there's a whole new birth. You're going to have to be born again for this whole thing to take place. And Jesus keeps talking about God being for everybody, that he's absolutely for everybody. So Nicodemus is listening to this, and he's trying to figure it out that Jesus is bringing this big change, and the change is that the kingdom is present and it's here, but he he wants to know who gets in and how do they get in. And Jesus says, hey, I know what you're here to ask, and nobody gets in without being born again. 
people who have new birth experiences. That's who get into the kingdom of God. You have to be born into this kind of thing. You had to be born again. Now, some of you are thinking, well, if that's the answer to the question, I still don't know what you're talking about. Jesus, what else you got? And that's exactly where Nicodemus is. He's like, I I hear your answer. I mean, he, he, he says, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Nicodemus is like, okay, I get this is... This is a figure of speech, but I totally don't get the figure of speech. I mean, surely, I, I, don't, I, don't even know, I don't even know where you're going with this figure of speech. And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can repro- reproduce only human life. And finally, I think Nicodemus is nodding his head a little bit, and he's going, okay, I get it. That's right. Cats produce cats, and dogs produce dogs, and human beings produce human beings. And, An older translation of this says, (coughs) flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Okay, so we're talking about spiritual life. You You have to be spiritually reborn. There has to be a spiritual rebirth. Something needs to happen, not on the outside of a person, but a person needs to change spiritually in a way, in a way that happened to them physically. They got born into this world physically in in that way and they need to have a spiritual birth like that and then jesus just looks at him and says you shouldn't be surprised that i'm saying to you you must be born again now i want you to notice that jesus says this thing about being born again to a really good person often when we hear about being born again we think well of course there are some people that have messed their life up so much of course they need to be born again they need a new start but jesus points this at a good guy. I mean, maybe the best of the best guys. I mean, this is a guy who doesn't even want to embarrass Jesus. He's not trying to challenge Jesus. He's trying to actually figure it out. He's kept most of all the laws his whole life long, and Jesus says to him, hey, you have to be born again. And the point, of course, that he's making is that Jesus is just saying, all people are the same. Everyone's the same. Good people, bad people, everybody comes to God the same. Jesus invited everybody, not just Jewish everybody's, but everybody to come. And everybody has to enter into this new life in the same way. And the message is the same for everybody. It's for good guys and bad guys and people in between. That knowing God, about talking about God, about having a religious system that you figure out how you can get God to do what you think what you want him to do. None of that really matters. You have to be born again. You have to have a spiritual new birth with God. I mean, Jesus, he just won't let go of this idea. All of us have to have a spiritual rebirth. We have to be born again. And this is why, and some of you have been around here long enough to have heard us, this is why, you know, in some religious systems, parents have these things where they dedicate children or they baptize children, and sometimes people are reluctant to say that's the kind of thing that enters you into the whole new thing. And I get what parents are going at. I I dedicated my children at birth. But we would say to, to teenagers and to adults who've had that experience that, hey, there comes a moment that Jesus would look at you and say, hey, you have to decide. This can't be done for you. You must be born again. You must choose yourself to have a spiritual rebirth because if 
Jesus were here, he would look at you and he'd say, hey, I get what your parents are trying to do, and they were trying to point you in the right direction, and they loved me, and they wanted you to follow me, but I know you... I know you haven't missed church in three years, and I know you pray every day, and I know you read your devotions, and I know you do all the things that we've asked you to do, and I know you serve, and I know you give, and I know you help people. You have to be born again. And I know you haven't been to church in years, and I know the only time you use my name is when a driver cuts you off in traffic and you yell out my name, and I know that you only pray when you're in trouble, and you have to be born again. Commitment isn't enough. Recommitting isn't enough. Dedicating and going on a system isn't enough. Coming to church often enough isn't enough. Hey, the question is, have you been born into new life by the Spirit of God? And at this point, Nicodemus is right where somebody, I mean, he's still on track and he's like, what? I mean, I don't, I don't get what you're trying to say. So Jesus, he goes to a story that Nicodemus would have known and he'd been real familiar with, but you're not familiar with it like he was. Nicodemus was immersed in the Old Testament as a teacher of the law, and you won't know this story as well. So Jesus is making the same point with this story about being born again. I'll try to catch you up. He says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness. Now, just so you know, as soon as Nicodemus heard that, a bronze snake lifted upon a pole in the desert, in the wilderness, he would have known the whole rest of the story, and he had known the point that Jesus is going to make here. But you don't, so let me tell you the story. There's a time when the people of God, these people that God had made a covenant with through Abraham, they eventually wind up in slavery. And they cry out to God to be let out of slavery, and God sends a deliverer, Moses, who begins to deliver them from slavery. They get to where they're wandering in the desert, and they have nothing to eat, and so they cry out to God, and God miraculously provides food for them. Now, the point the story is at is they've been having this manna, this food from heaven, delivered for them, free of charge, doesn't cost them anything. All they have to do is go out and get it, but they've been having it day after day after day after day, and they do what some of us tend to do when our life is pretty good. They look at it, and they go, huh, manna again. And they start complaining about the fact that they have to eat the same thing again. Really? It's this again? Now remember, without this, they don't have anything. They don't have anything to eat. And they complain about what God's providing. And they begin to complain to Moses. And they say to Moses, Moses, we were better off when we were still slaves. I mean, at least in that day, we got, it was slave food. It wasn't good food. And so there was maggots with bread. And then there one day be, might be maggots with meat. But at least it was a different form of maggots in our slave food. But here, we don't have anything. I mean, it's just this manna provided for us free day after day after day. And so they complain. And then eventually one night they're camping in a place and they wind up camping in a place where there are a lot of snakes and people begin to get bitten by the snakes and they start dying and they start crying out and they complain again to Moses and they're like, first you take us out here in the middle of the desert and there's nothing to eat and then we get this manna and we're tired of eating the same thing again and again and, and now there's some snakes and we're dying. Now some of them were smart enough and we're later told in the New Testament that this is true, that they begin to see Maybe this is God allowing this snake thing to happen to us because we've complained about all the good he's done in our life. I mean, like, maybe God's getting our attention, and we're told later that God doesn't allow this thing with the snakes to happen just to teach them about their complaining. And he's, they cry out to God, God, do something. 
So God says to Moses, Moses goes to God and says, so what do we do? And God says to Moses, hey, this will be ironic. <laughs> Make a snake out of bronze, put it on a pole, lift it up, and anybody who will have the trust in me to look at the bronze snake, they'll be healed. And people did, and the ones who looked at it, they survived the whole deal. Now, you know the story that Nicodemus does. Jesus says to him, just like Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, then he adds, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now I think Nicodemus is like, what? Now, I also think Nicodemus, because he's a Jewish man in Galilee under the thumb of Rome, he knows what, what Jesus means when he says lift it on a pole. Because the Romans had crucified hundreds of Jews. He'd left them hanging on poles so that they just rotted, their flesh fell off. And he hears Jesus say, just like snake gets lifted up and people put their trust in God saves them, so the Son of Man, which is Jesus' phrase for himself, I'm going to have to be lifted up on a pole. And Nicodemus goes, you're, you're going to be crucified? Just as the Son of Man has to be lifted up so that everybody who believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus shifts from this born-again image to this thing of eternal life. This thing that I've been talking about, about born again, which again, remember, was your idea about the kingdom of God. You have to get into the kingdom of God by being born again. Jesus says, then in the kingdom is a life and real life, a different quality of life, a whole different kind of life, eternal kind of life. And Jesus is saying, people, Jesus, are you, are you saying that people who look at you and who trust in you, like people trusted in the snake on the pole, that if they will trust in you that... In that moment, rebirth takes place. If, they will put, if they'll go from putting their trust in themselves to putting their trust in you, that in that moment, rebirth begins to take place in them. Trust people like God. They trusted God to heal them in the desert. And then the next verse, which becomes the most famous verse, I think, probably in all of the Bible now. And I don't know whether Jesus says this or if it's John who's having a commentary on all of this. John is an old man writing this story about Nicodemus and Jesus. I personally think this is his commentary on everything he's described about Jesus. But here's the next words. You've heard them before. They say, because of this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, anyone, any, a whole bunch of individuals, men and women at a time, boys and girls at a time, anyone who believes in him. And the phrase believes in him, well, it's a new phrase. Nobody in the Greek language which is spoken is, no one had ever written it until John writ, uh, wrote it. And it's, it's a word, but it's really a combination of words. He, like, he does a mashup. He puts two words together. And what he's trying to convey is not just believe that, not anyone who believes that Jesus is God's son, but anybody who believes in, who trusts in, anybody who puts their faith in Jesus as the Son of God has to, eternal life. And that's a big difference between believes that and trust in. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, that whoever would believe that he's the Son of God, believe in him, trust in him as the Son of God, they'll have eternal life, a a new kind of life, a spirit-given kind of life. They'll be born again. 
new life at that moment, that you, you take your trust from you and you place your trust in Jesus. New life begins to give birth in you. And it happens one moment at a time, one person at a time. You must be born again. And then to make sure that we don't miss it, Jesus or John, whichever one says, for God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, God didn't send Jesus because he was mad. God didn't send his son into the world because he's angry. He didn't come to condemn the world. Jesus came to bring you life, to save you, one person at a time, one decision at a time, one life at a time, one new birth at a time. As teenagers and single adults and married adults and young people and old people understand one person at a time. I can't find life in myself. As people who've been good like Nicodemus their whole life long and they go through rituals and they try to connect with God and they feel like they're alongside of God but not with God. As they discover, hey, there's something else and I could step into the kingdom but not by my own power. I have to be born again. I have to put my trust in Jesus as young people and old people and good people and bad people. You don't become a follower of Jesus by just hanging out with Jesus. You have to decide. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. Turning my feet from the way I want to go and trying to get God to walk on my way to I'm putting my feet in the path of Jesus. My feet are pointed toward him and I'm following him. And Jesus with a smile on his face as Nicodemus, I think, finally begins to get it. Where he begins to say, hey, I've been making a commitment to this old way and a commitment by myself and I've recommitted and I've committed and I've dedicated and I've rededicated myself to God and I fail and I'm almost there but I don't make it. And Jesus with a smile on his face would say, hey, Nicodemus, you know, you don't become a dog by living in a dog house. You have to be born of a dog. And you don't become a son of God, by hanging out with God. You have to be born of God. You have to be born of the Spirit. Human flesh gives birth to human flesh. But Spirit gives life to spiritual life. You must be born again. So Jesus looks at this good man and then eventually looks at every man and woman in between and finally looks at me and says, Ed, you have to be born again. And he looks to many of you today and says, and you too, you have to be born again. That one statement, that becomes the core of the Jesus movement. Jesus is greater than all of our efforts to get life on our own. He's greater than all of that. And that community Christian, we take this call real seriously. We want you to know the real life does not begin with you starting to keep some set of moral guidelines so that you become good enough that everybody else approves and your life begins to look better. Rebirth doesn't begin with you deciding to attend something or decide to follow something. It begins with you deciding to put your feet in the path of Jesus. You turn your feet toward Jesus and you begin to follow him. It begins with individuals deciding, I will put my trust in Jesus that he's right. About what? About everything. He's right about everything. And so I'll follow him. I give my life and my will. I turn it over to him. And many of you have seen this. When it begins to happen, new life begins to take place in you. And you didn't even try so much as it just begins to spring forth out of you. 
I love what I see happen with people over time and I hear about it where you've seen it where somebody you haven't seen in years they begin to see you and as they begin to talk to you a little bit they begin to say hey man you're different things are just different I talked to somebody who knew me back in high school and they go hey you know I never thought that I would ever see you in church much less that you'd be a pastor of a church and I sort of winked and said hey the reason you never thought you'd saw that is because you never thought you'd be in church to see anybody in church but you know what they were saying who would have thought this would happen well not me because flesh just gives birth to flesh and effort gives birth to more effort but new life it comes from the Spirit of God who begins to change us and when he begins to change us everything's open to change the driving force behind us being a place where everybody is welcome and nobody is perfect is because of this one thing I mean we're going to do some great things together. We're going to help people in our community together. We hope we make a difference in the world, and that we do something about poverty, that we change a lot of lives, and we're going to serve each other. We're going to make great friends. We're going to come together in small group. We're going to worship God together. But at the end of it, what's going to mostly happen is God is going to bring new life in us, not just individually, but new life in us together. And we want this to be a place where anybody can come and everyone's welcome, where no matter where you've gone or what you've done or what you've become that you are welcome here because Jesus came into the world that God said he gave him so that whoever whenever wherever somebody would put their faith in him they can have new life that's why our doors are wide open that's why we give and that's why we serve and that's why we come together and we sing and that's why we unapologetically ask every follower of Christ come on get on board and don't just clean up your act Put your feet behind the feet of Jesus. Point your feet toward him and begin to move toward the way he wants to go. So here's my prayer for you. If you're just starting this thing out, keep coming and keep listening and serve with us and show up with us and hang out with us for a while. And that's how you begin to see that it's all real and that it really does change people. And at some point when you know for sure that Jesus is who you want to follow, Take yourself away from leading your own life and allow Jesus to begin to lead your life and new birth will begin to happen in you because God came into the world not to condemn us but to save us through Jesus. And if today you're at a place like Nicodemus that you know you want it and you've heard enough and you've been intrigued and today's your day to be born again, then I want to give you a chance to do that. So would you bow with me and would you pray? And right now, while everyone's bowed, if you would just say to God, God, I want that. I, I no longer want to be in charge of my life and try to get you on my plan. I want to do life with you. I'm turning my feet toward Jesus, and I'm going to follow whatever he says to do. He's the leader of my life. Now, a part of what Jesus asked us to do at that moment is to let other people know. So the best way we have for you to let us know is Hey, would you go on ashleypartchurch.com right now and click on that card that says, make a decision? I mean, as soon as I'm done praying, would you fill that out and let us know the decision you made? We'll follow up with you and help you to take the very first steps that Jesus asked you to take. We need to talk to you about that. We want to do that. Or if you don't have a phone and you want to let somebody know, see anybody in a green shirt at your campus, and we'd love to talk to you. If you did this online, Hey, reach out to us, message us, let us know. Now, Father in heaven, we are so thankful for you and for your love for us. Help people who are making this decision today 
turn their feet toward you and begin to follow and help those of us who've already decided that to continue to put our feet in your footprints and follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you all for coming. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.